question about that. How many chapters in Isaiah? 66. I'll tell you an easy way to remember that. How many books in the Bible? <laughs> yeah. He's got the same number of chapters as there are books in the Bible. <coughs> Approximately what year did Isaiah live? Seven hundred BC. Yeah, just remember seven hundred BC. And you see, he, I mean, he runs, of course, the range here, but seven hundred is right in the middle. And his prophesying overlapped. What very major event in the Old Testament? Captivity of the Northern Kingdom. Here we go. Assyrian captivity, 722 BC. And Isaiah covered that. Who was the king in Judah at the time when that happened? Hezekiah. That's right. Hezekiah. Good or bad king? Pretty good. Good king. Lucky for Judah, he is a good king, or else they would have gotten carried away captive too, because it was a very close call for them. Wow. Um, and I don't, I'm not showing you the map this time, but um, last time we did the map and you just saw old Judah just in the middle of a huge Assyrian empire. Um, Alright, so. Um, here we have our outline, and last time we got up through chapter 27, and the last section we did was, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 23. The last section we did was called Judgment Against the Nations. And, and we went through a list of nations, we did it pretty fast, it wasn't overly interesting for us. But we continue with judgment. But in this section, it's not judgment against specific nations so much as judgment on all the earth. Um, so here we go. Chapter 24, judgment on all the earth. And some of the descriptions in, in this chapter just sound so total and so global. Um, and, I, and I'll mention that verse 8 is quoted, or I don't know if quoted is the right word, in Revelation chapter 18. Um, Revelation never does directly quote anything, but it, it, it does. It includes words from the verse where you know that's what it's talking about. Um, and and when again when you read this chapter it sounds like revelation you know the kind of um, huge judgments that we that you read about in that book um, so I, I take it that this is a this chapter is not just about judgments going on in the near future but going on out, really covering all of God's judgments on the earth. It's a general principle that God is going to punish sin. And He does that in one way here with by judging nations. All right, in chapter 25, there's a praise of the people of God. Now this seems like an odd thing to throw in. 
after we've had this judgment on all the earth, why would you have praise? I mean, look at this in verse two. What? What? I mean, here we are praising God. What are we praising God for in verse two? Destroy the city. Destroy. You made a city into a heap. <laughs> It'll never be rebuilt again. Why is this praise? Look in verse four, and you'll get the answer. <coughs> Yeah, the ones that God is judging are the people who are evil. And evil people beat up on poor righteous people. So the poor righteous people here are praising God for rescuing them. You have the exact same thing in the book of Revelation. Um, You have the the big, huge nations, empires of the world beating up on God's people. And you have the souls of, of the righteous underneath the altar. They've been killed because they were Christians. And they're saying, how long, O Lord, before You avenge our blood? And the rest of the book is giving the answer how long it's going to be. There's going to be lots of chapter 24's of Isaiah to come in in the book of Revelation. And in this chapter, verse 8 is referenced in the New Testament. It's referenced, He'll swallow up death for all time. 1 Corinthians 15 references that. And the Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. A couple times in Revelation, that's referred to. Um... And then in chapter 26, we have a song of trust in, in God that he, because, of course, God was thankful for Him for taking care of us. Um, in verse 12, Lord, you, have, you will establish peace for us since You have also performed for us all our works. Um, and then the last one in this section of Judgment and Promise is in chapter 27, the, the deliverance. Of Israel, um, and, I, and I just want you to look at verse two. In that day, a vineyard of wine. Sing of it. Um, any idea why I picked out a verse that just mentioned a vineyard of wine here? Have we had a vineyard before in the book? What the vineyard represent? Israel. Israel yes. Um, this isn't the last time we'll have that referenced. Um, Alright, so then that brings us to the next section which the person doing the outline for us titled Six Woes on Israel and Assyria. So, um, the first woe is on Ephraim and Judah. What's another name for Ephraim? Israel, yeah, Israel. This is an Ephraim is the northern king. Ephraim was the biggest tribe in the northern kingdom, Israel, and Judah was the biggest tribe in the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom is called Judah. So if we cover um, woes to Ephraim and Judah, we've covered the whole people of God here. And then in um, the next woe is in chapter twenty-nine. Um, it says, Woe, O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Um, well, as you read the, the chapter, who, who do you realize is Ariel? Yeah, it's Jerusalem. Ariel, you, your marginal note says, means what? Lion of God. Yeah, Lion of God. Um, 
So woe, O Lion of God. I mean, Jerusalem in the days of King David was the Lion of God, but they're not behaving like a Lion of God anymore. God's going to bring distress on them. He's going to, going to judge them. So woe, uh, woe to Jerusalem because of their sins. And then in the same chapter, in verse 15, woe to those who hide their plans from the Lord. And it's an interesting section because it's obviously foolish to try to hide things from God. When I think of this, like in verse 6, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me, or what is formed say to me who formed it, He has no understanding? I mean, God's the one that made us. I mean, it is complete silliness to think that we can hide from God. But that's what these people were doing. They thought that God wasn't going to see. So, woe to them. And then in chapter 30, woe to the rebellious children. Well, actually, this is, these are the same people. <laughs> it's just another way of saying you know, the people of Jerusalem, people of Judah. But in this case, in verse 1, what are these rebellious children doing? They're planning their own salvation. Yeah, they know how to solve the problem. They don't need God. Um, the Assyrians are beating up on them. What are they going to do to solve the problem in verse 2? Yeah, go to Egypt. Egypt will solve the problem. And so the chapter is saying, folks, that is not going to work. You're just you're wasting your time. Um, you, Egypt's not going to solve your problem. And, and chapter 31 continues with the same idea. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Um, yeah, they in, ver, in verse 1, they rely on horses, they trust in chariots because they are many, and horses because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And The generation that Isaiah was prophesying to never did. They never really did change. Um, and then they, they suffered greatly because of that. Um, now, chapter 32 actually doesn't have a woe. Um, it, it's, um, it's a real contrast to this. Um, Behold, a king will reign righteously and princes will rule justly. When's that going to happen? Much later. Yeah. Yeah, we're really looking toward the time of, of the Messiah here when they're going to have the king ruling justly. And one other thing I want to mention in this chapter, in verse 9, who does he talk to? The women. Have we had the women before? Yes, the women. Yeah, it was real early on. They were very prosperous, yeah. They were living it up and they didn't care anything about the poor and the oppressed. Um, Is that the same women we're talking to here? Sound like women who are at ease, yeah. And how soon are they going to have troubles in verse ten? A year and a few days. Yeah. Now, yeah. So I would take this to be the Assyrian invasion, which came upon the southern kingdom. 
Uh, they didn't get all wiped out like the Northern Kingdom did. But they really got, they suffered. They suffered very much because of the Assyrians. And so he spends the rest of the chapter addressing them and the fact that you know, you're, you're having such a good time, but you don't care about God. You're, you're, you need to be, you, know, you really need to put some sackcloth on and, and, and repent of your sins, is what he's saying in, in that section. And then the last chapter in this section, woe to the destroyer. Who's the destroyer? Well, who was the enemy that was going to come upon those women in, in chapter 32? Specifically, Assyria. That's right. And, and that's who chapter 33 is against. The Assyrian. And what he, what he says basically in this chapter is, um, you thought this was all of you, but God says, I'm the one that was doing this. And so in the end of verse 1, as soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. You're, you're, you deserve punishment too because you're not doing this to be righteous. You're doing this because you're cruel and, and sinful. Alright. Um, then, we're still on this general topic of, of judgment. We finished the woes. The six woes on Israel and Syria. Now we've got two chapters that we've titled Judgment and Promise. And the first chapter is judgment. Uh, God's wrath against all nations. Um, and this is very similar to the, that one we had in chapter 24 that we started this morning's class with. Um, verse 4, All the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All the hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Um, that, that's the sky rolling up like a scroll. Where is that referred to? What book? Yeah, Revelation. Yeah, um, Chapter 6, in fact. And then in verse 10, there's another one of these. After he talks about how terrible it's going to be, it says, it will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever from generation to generation. It will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. And the smoke going up forever and ever is, is referenced a couple of times in Revelation. Um, well, if we're going to do judgment or promise, and we just did judgment, we've got to do promise here. And chapter 35 is the wonderful future for Zion. Um, and the language here is really over the top. I mean, the wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabo will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and so on. Um, in verse 3, encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble and say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Um, the, the immediate fulfillment of this is the... Um, restoration from Babylonian captivity. Um, but the language used is such that it really applies much more broadly than that and, and really applies in the New Testament to the future for God's people. Um, 
Verse 5, though, you may recognize this. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Um, Jesus quoted that in Luke 7, verse 22, when John the Baptist's messengers came to him to say, you know, Are you the one? Tell them what you just saw. <laughs> and Jesus was beginning the fulfillment of this chapter, but like a lot of the fulfillments we have in the New Testament, they are just beginning. And, and there's yet more to come. That's what, what I get from the book of Revelation, as well as other places. Now, the last few chapters of part one, and, and Isaiah is divided into two parts. We'll talk about that once I finish this section. But these are the last sections of the first half of the book. Um, and I'll just mention they are the last references to a historical event to take to be found in Isaiah. Um, and, and this and who who's the king when these things take place? These next four chapters. Uh, John? Hezekiah. Hezekiah, that's right. Um, yeah, this was these four chapters all happen all pretty close together at a time when Sennacherib brought his Assyrian army against Jerusalem. And, and we've actually covered this history in Kings and in Chronicles. The, this story is in both of those places. So this is actually the third time in the Bible that this story is told. They're not identical, but you know you get a few extra details in one place versus another. <coughs> but we'll see when we get to chapter 39 why this is here. This forms a transition <coughs> to the second half of the book. Okay, chapter 36, this guy Rabshakeh, he's not the king of Assyria. He's the servant of the king. The king, sin, king of Assyria, Sennacherib. He sends Rabshakeh to Jerusalem to um, taunt the people of Jerusalem and try to get them to surrender without uh, Assyria having to waste time on them. Uh, the Assyrians were... They had bigger things to worry about, but they they couldn't just leave Jerusalem alone if they if they left Jerusalem behind them. That was a, kind of a risky thing because there was an army of Judeans inside the city. So, Rabshak is trying to taunt the people, tell them, you, you can't possibly win. You might as well give up and, and um, you'll have peace until the king sends you to some other nation where you know, you'll live and, and enjoy it. <laughs> Which kind of detracted a little bit from the message, but <laughs> that was what they were going to do if they could. And then, in chapter 37... Um, Hezekiah went to God with this. And, and God, through Isaiah the prophet, told him that um, he would rescue the city. And by the end of the chapter, we find that he did rescue them. And this is one of John Manette's favorite passages because it has numbers in it. <laughs> this is where John gets his... Um, Formula: <clears throat> One angel equals 185,000 dead men. <clears throat> and, um, certainly, in this case, that's exactly what happened. One night killed 185,000 Assyrians, which, of course, brought a very speedy end to the Assyrian invasion. The guy went home, and some years later, when he was worshiping in, in the house of his god, he was killed. Which I think his story is told like this to let you know that's how much that's how much help he got from his god. <laughs> Even though he made it with his own hands. 
gratitude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then we have a, another story which at first glance seems like a rather rather minor story put in here. But it leads up to a, a major issue. He gets sick and what does Isaiah tell him? He's going to die. Which of course makes it a pretty major issue for him. And so he prays to God and, and God hears his prayer and gives him how many more years? Fifteen years. And gives him a sign even. What was the sign? The shadow moved backwards on the steps. Normally the shadow goes forward, so the time is going backwards somehow. Um, and, and this was wonderful. And, and he, he, we have a, a song of praise to God that he, he gives to, um, to, to the Lord after this. It's just wonderful. But apparently as a result of this, we have the story in chapter 39, uh, which I titled Hezekiah Shows His Treasures to the Babylonians. Um, that they, the king of Babylon, and, and understand that that's not a major world power at this time. Uh, it was subject to the Assyrians. Uh, uh, the Assyrians were the world world power. This Merodach Baladan was the king of Babylon, but he had to pay tribute to the Assyrians. But he heard about that Hezekiah had been miraculously healed, and he sent uh, messengers to him. Well. It would have taken these messengers a good two months to get from Babylon to, to Jerusalem. That seems a little bit over the top just to congratulate a, a guy that he's been healed. And so unstated here, but pretty clearly hinted at is the fact that he was looking for a political alliance with Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was really happy to see him and he showed him what? Everything he had, all of his armory, all of his treasuries. He's he's basically letting the king know what he can bring to this possible alliance. Um, and Isaiah Isaiah rebukes him. And what does Isaiah says is going to happen in the future? Yeah, Babylon's going to carry all this treasure away. You you showed her off; they're going to take it. Um, and in fact, some of his sons will be officials in the palace of the king of Babylon, which means they'll be slaves. Can you name me any that were descended from Hezekiah? Yeah, Daniel was of the royal family. I, I'm not certain he was descended from Hezekiah, but I would guess that he was. Um, and he was one of those slaves, an official in, um, in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, at this point, the book suddenly changes. And there's, there's a number of differences in the rest of the book. For one thing, the Assyrian is no longer considered the enemy for the rest of the book. Um, and that's why this, this historical interlude here is important because it, it shows us why we've got a different enemy. And, and from chapter 40 on, the enemy is considered to be Babylon. And in fact, the people are considered to be captive in Babylon. Prophecies really are... Look, even though that's not, that did not happen in Isaiah's lifetime. Uh, it's a good hundred years um, away from... If you go to the end of Isaiah's life, I think you have to go about a hundred years for, forward before they 
you get to the Babylonian captivity. But the rest of the book of Isaiah assumes that people are in Babylonian captivity and is prophesying the future of them coming back. And the transition was this chapter 39 when this was predicted. Now, um, back to the outline, we've got three sections left in the, in the book, but all three are in the second half. Um, and we're, and we're, just, we're just going to do the first section this morning. But I want to look at a comparison. I mentioned earlier that Isaiah has 66 chapters and the Bible has 66 books, but there's more comparisons than that that I think you'll find interesting. The Old Testament contains 39 books, and the first half of Isaiah contains 39 chapters. And of course, the second half, 27 chapters, 27 books in the New Testament. And I, and I point out here, of course, the chapter divisions are not inspired by God. This is just... I mentioned this to you so you, you can help it'll help you remember where the division comes. But the the comparison between the first half of the Old Testament and the second half of the New Testament I think is a very valid one. This is more than just numbers here. Uh, the first half mentions a lot of historical kings, other characters, the second half just mentions Cyrus. And he's future, he's prophecy. No history, it's all prophecy. And just as the Old Testament ends with a warning of judgment from God in the book of Malachi, the first half of Isaiah ends with a prophecy of the judgment of Babylonian captivity. The second half of Isaiah begins when chapter 40 with the prophecy of John the Baptist. And who is your first major historical character in, in the Gospels and the New Testament? Um, the second half of Isaiah has more prophecies of the Messiah in its 27 chapters than any other similarly sized section of the Old Testament. Um, you, you're probably familiar with Isaiah 53. We sometimes read that at the Lord's table. A very famous prophecy of the crucifixion. It sounds like it was written by somebody sitting at the foot of the cross, even though it was written 700 years before Jesus. Um, also, the other thing in these 27 chapters is the salvation of the Gentiles. I, I don't think there's any other place in the Old Testament that covers the salvation of the Gentiles in nearly as much detail as you'll find in this second half of, of Isaiah. And the second half ends with language that sounds a lot like the end of the book of Revelation. You, you kind of have... In, in, in Isaiah, you sort of have a, a picture of the Bible in a nutshell. Old Testament, chapter 1-39, New Testament, 40-66. I did a quick search on the internet and I found out there's some people that just really go wild with this idea. I mean, they, they just... <laughs> I mean, they're just assuming... I mean, that, I found one chart where every chapter in Isaiah corresponds with a chapter in the Bible. Chapter 1, Genesis, chapter 2, Exodus, and all this. And I don't think these people... I mean, they may be aware that the chapter divisions were not part of the book of Isaiah. But they may also not be aware of the fact that even the number of books has, has varied because at the time of Christ, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. So you would only have 65 books <laughs> if you went with that. And, and of course, as we were covering Samuel, we saw there were other cases like that. Um, but the second half really can be viewed as the New Testament foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And we'll be looking at that. Alright, so the section we want to look at and the time we have left is 
40 to 48. Now, you were only supposed to read through 47. We're not going to do 48 but uh, this morning. But this we've titled Deliverance and Restoration of Israel. And so chapter 40, clear the way for the Lord. Verse 3. Um, well, let me read verse 2 first. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Well, what does it mean if she's received of the Lord double for all her sins? What's the point? Yeah, it's done. She, she's been punished. Now she can come back. And so the immediate fulfillment of this would certainly be the return from the Babylonian captivity. But look what we find in verse 3. A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Where have we heard that? Uh, I don't... Uh, John? Oh, I was thinking of John the Baptist. Yeah, yeah. John the Baptist, when they asked him, Who are you? He quoted this verse. This is who I am. I'm the voice of one in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now the picture here is of a great king who's going to be taking a, a journey to visit his kingdom. And so he sends out messengers ahead of him to get things ready. And, and, and you know, at each town along the way, he's going to tell them, you know, the king's coming in, in a week. You know, fill in these potholes, you know. Paint, paint the fronts of your buildings, you know, make this place look. So here he is, he's making smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. They're <laughs> not just doing potholes. <laughs> They're covering valleys and mountains. They want this to be a nice smooth road because the great king is coming. <clears throat> now, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. This is all what's going to happen when the great King comes. Um, now, in the next few verses, 12-15, through 15, um, God is trying to show the people His greatness. Um, who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? I mean, if you look at the oceans, how much water is in the ocean? God just kind of puts it in His hand. Well, that's how much. <laughs> and mark off the heavens by the span. You know, Let's see how wide the, 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 the solar system is. Let's see how wide the galaxies are. <laughs> just measure with His hand. Calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scale. I mean, this is just trying to let us know we are talking about somebody great here. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as His Counselor has informed Him? Now that's actually quoted um, in, in, in the New Testament. But the point that I think is Romans, in Romans Paul mentions that. The point God is making is Nobody tells God what to do. He doesn't need any advice. With whom did He consult and who gave Him understanding? And what we're reading in this section of Isaiah are all these marvelous great works that God has planned to do. And He didn't ask us. 
He didn't ask anybody. He, he's the one who... It, um, I mean, we can't measure the waters in the hollow of our hands. We can't weigh the mountains in a balance. We're, we're not in a position to give God advice. In verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. You know, he, He's just trying to let us know we're dealing with somebody awesomely great. Alright, now, the next chapter, uh, chapter 41, is a prophecy of a deliverer from the east. Now, his name is not given in this chapter. It will be given later. But um, I, I believe who he's talking about is Cyrus. The Medes and the Persians, Cyrus was the king of them, they came from the east to attack Babylon. And so th- this is the prophecy of how God has aroused this conqueror from the east to come and rescue His people. Um, verse 2, Who has aroused one from the east whom He calls in righteousness to His feet? Well, who's, what's the answer? Who has done that? God. Yeah, that's talking about God, of course. Um, verse 4, Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. Now, uh, I'll just mention, not not spending a lot of time, but in verse 7, he talks about how you make idols. The craftsman encourages the smelter and uses smooth metal with the hammer, encourages them and beats the anvil. I assume you notice as you're reading how often that picture comes up. Repeatedly in these chapters that we read for this morning, it talks about the foolishness of people who build idols. In one place, they plant a tree and it grows up and they chop it down and, you know, and carpenters, in this case, are making one out of metal. In another case, they need to move their idols to another place so they put them on a donkey and, carry, and the donkey carries the idol on. And in every case, he's, he's making fun of these people. What kind of a god do you have that has to be carried? <laughs> and, and then in the same passage, we're talking about the carrying. He says... I, God says, I'm the one that do, does the carry. I carry my people. <laughs> um, but now I want you to notice in verse 8 what he calls Israel in that verse. My servant. My servant. Very important. I want you to keep that in mind. He, he, he calls him his servant. He calls him descendant of Abraham, my friend. Abraham is called the friend of God. You remember that verse? Um, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from his remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. This is an important feature. The people of God were intended from day one to be the servant of God. They were, they were, were intended to be on earth doing what God wants them to do, showing forth God's glory to the whole world. Now we, we of course, are in that position today. But there's a reason why I want to emphasize this sermon. We're, kind of, we're going to see in the next chapter. Before I get there, though, let me see here. Just notice a few more phrases. of This is still talking about coming back from Babylonian captivity. Verse 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. Uh, very extravagant language to describe the marvelous um, wonder of bringing these people back from captivity, just something unheard of. But that in itself, that in turn was a foreshadowing of another bringing back that gets talked about in the New Testament. 
Um, Verse 23 is another feature we find quite a lot in these chapters. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Talking to these idols. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Now, the one thing I want to notice is declare the things that are going to come afterward. God comes back to that over and over in this section of the book. He says, who else has ever predicted what's going to happen before it happens? And this is very important for us today, although some of the predictions in here are not things we can use today to prove that the Bible is inspired by God. For example, the prediction of Cyrus. We can't use that and say, wow, you know, look, God predicted Cyrus 100 years in advance. The problem we have is we can't prove it was written 100 years in advance. Because the oldest manuscript we have of Isaiah dates to hundreds of years after, after Cyrus was dead. But there are greater prophecies in this section that we can prove were done before they took place. Those are the prophecies of the Messiah. Because we have... You can go to a museum today and you can find a manuscript of Isaiah that was copied from an older manuscript, of course, several hundred years before Jesus. It's been dated by scientists who, who really are not believers in God, uh, but they've still dated it accurately a couple hundred years before Jesus. So, what God is using to, to prove who He is is something we can use today. He is the one who tells about things before they happen. And He does that so that you'll know when it happens, it wasn't an accident. It was The whole thing was guided by God. And, and in this verse, He's challenging, hey, you idols, see if you can do that. <laughs> Why don't you do I mean, do anything, good or evil. <laughs> All right. And now, chapter 42, up to titled, The True Servant of the Lord. Now here's why I was emphasizing this servant thing so much. Because look in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Now you read that and you think, oh, he's talking about Israel again. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Wait a minute, this doesn't sound like Israel so much. This as an individual person. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Who's this talking about? Yeah, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. But you notice. He doesn't call him the Messiah here. He doesn't call him his anointed. He calls him his servant. The very thing he called Israel in the previous chapter. And I think the two were intended to go together. In fact, after this in the book, he'll again go back to Jacob and call call him Jacob my servant. (laughs) And and if I'm not mistaken, and I haven't read, it's been a while since I've read the rest of the book, but I think he even calls Jesus Jacob at some point later on in this in this book. You see, Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel. He was what Israel was supposed to be. Just as He is what we're supposed to be. He, he's our fulfillment as well. Because all of our lives are, are incredibly imperfect. 
So He is the real, true servant. God, God is going to have a servant. He created man to have a servant on earth. And Adam and Eve messed up. And everybody ever, ever after that messed up. But God's yet going to have His servant. And, and He's announcing it here. And it was, of course, the Messiah, Jesus. Um, verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Now I take the people, meaning the people of Israel. Who are the nations? The Gentiles, yes. That's us. To open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is My name. I will not give My glory to another nor My praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I declare them to you. Chapter 43. The Lord will redeem Israel. Verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. And verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my, my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Again, talking about the return from the Babylonian captivity. One of the things that's very interesting in this section, and we saw this really in the first section too, is how God intersperses events that were much nearer in time with events that were much farther away. He intersperses the return from the Babylonian captivity with His servant. And we know His servant wasn't going to come for about 500 years after that return. In the first section, we saw him interspersing the judgment of the Assyrians with the birth of this promised child, who was who was going to rule the nations and and you know a number of marvelous promises. So he's doing the same thing here, back and forth. But in fact, the return from the captivity stands as a a symbol, a a, 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 a foreshadowing of the greater return from sin. And bringing people out of Satan's kingdom under Jesus. Okay. Chapter 44 The Promise of the Spirit. This is wonderful. Um, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. He comes back to that servant again. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This is how God's going to solve the problem of a servant that it doesn't behave like a servant. Put his spirit on, on this servant. And of course, this is a promise that isn't fulfilled until the beginning of it on the day of Pentecost. Verse 22, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud 
and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to Me, for I have redeemed you. Another one of those promises that ultimately is looking to Jesus. Alright, chapter 45. Finally we get the name of this guy who's going to, that God's going to call to, to do this rescuing. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand, <coughs> and, and so forth. Um, let me see. He says in verse 4, For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. So, he's calling Cyrus, but the reason is so that Cyrus will let God's people go. They can go back to uh, to Israel. Um, Verse 22, Turn to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Um, Now, chapter 46 has this comparison I told you about where um, uh, it's, it's a comparison between Babylon's idols and the true God. And it talks about how these beasts are stooped down carrying these heavy gods <laughs> who they can't, of course, uh, carry themselves. Um, and so in verse 5 he says, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Um, and back to verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. So the comparison is, idols, beasts of burden have to carry. God, God does the carrying. Nobody carries God. And then the last one we had for this morning was chapter 47. And this is a lament for Babylon. We had, we had some laments in the first half of the book. And now we're lamenting Babylon because with Cyrus on the scene, he... He conquers Babylon. And so this this lament tells about how bad it's going to be for Babylon. You people are really going to suffer because of all the bad things you did to my people, you're going to be punished. Any last thoughts or comments or questions? Alright, next week we finish the book of Isaiah. So appreciate everybody everyone's help this morning.